I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Now, have you ever wondered what it must have been like to be chosen by our Lord to become one of the 12 apostles? And then, were the apostles really necessary for the mission of Jesus? Also, how did that call from Jesus change their lives? What did their experiences look and feel like from their perspective, from inside? And how did they comprehend what had happened to them afterward? Our guest tonight is an author and a Southern Baptist convert to Catholicism who seeks to find some general answers to what the fourth pillar of the church is, which is, it is apostolic. And what that apostolicity really looked like in human experience. So please welcome the author of a new book called These Twelve, The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes, Mr. Rod Bennett. Rod. Hello, Father. Good to have you back. It's good to be here again. You're yes. one of my favorite clergymen. So oh, I always enjoy uh, being with Father Mitch. That's very kind. You know, when it, I think it's good to remind our audience that it's been just over 20 years since you first appeared on the Coming Home program with Marcus Grodi, that's talking right. about your own yeah. conversion. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, uh, 20 years this month, I think. But, you know, you are not a convert who just sort of sits back and eats bonbons all the time. Well, I do that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes you're also doing research and you've been doing writing. It's been always a pleasure to have you on the program to discuss some of your insights into the early church. And something that was um, very striking to me in this, because Growing up Catholic, I said, well, of course, I mean, the apostles, I mean, this is so necessary. But right. you bring out that for a number of evangelicals, the apostles are just men, Lord used them, but they're no big deal. They're not that important. Right, just, just happened to this, be the first Christian. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, you know, but moving on, moving on. Where does that perspective come from? Well, I, I've speculated that it came in with the horrible experiences that the whole of Europe went through in the uh, time of the great wars of religion in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Southern Baptist churches that I grew up in were sort of descendants of the Anabaptist movement of that time, mm -hmm. which was a very radical rejection, not just of Catholicism, but of mainstream Protestantism up to that mm -hmm. point. So they right. hated Luther and Calvin as much as they did the Pope. And it was mutual. <laughs> I mean, Calvin and, yes. and Zwingli and others would persecute the Anabaptists. And one of the main ideas behind that movement was we don't trust any people. We don't trust human beings. They're they're uh, dirty and deceitful and uh, violent, and who could blame them for feeling that way after the upheavals and the sure. the violence of that era? So uh, there was a desire to to kind of have a religion 
untouched by human hands, as it were, sort of like the signs they used to have in the restaurant, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that, that, that human beings, we, we, what we really want is a book. Everybody goes to the book. You don't have to trust any human uh, go-betweens. Mm -hmm. And you go to the book, you figure it out. If you figure it out right, you go to heaven. So uh, uh, it's that kind of a radical distrust in human beings that caused them to really question even what the reformers had left behind of the idea that uh, the church was apostolic, that the original churches had been founded by the apostles and the church still in some sense was built on the apostles as its uh, mm -hmm. pillars. So. It, it strikes me, you know, as you speak that, that it's, um, uh, first of all, reminds me in some ways of Islamic thought that God has this perfect book that's delivered from heaven right. and that the, the, the uh, messengers are not so important as that word, the book, right. is key. The idea is the book is infallible and the men weren't. But mm -hmm. that's not actually what our faith teaches. Right. Jesus right. told it's, those. It's very different than that's Christian right. faith. That's right. Jesus told the 12 apostles, uh, whoever hears you, hears me. Mm -hmm. And whoever hears me, hears him who sent me. Whereas whoever rejects you, rejects me, and rejects the one that sent me. So there's a perfect uh, chain of custody there of the Word of God coming from the Father to the Son to His chosen ambassadors. And it's, you see it also in the conversion of St. Paul when our Lord says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Right. Whereas Saul had never met Christ no. personally. And he was the persecuting one, yeah. the church. Exactly. And killing the early Christians. But Christ said, you're doing to them, you're doing it to me. Right. We confess the church as the body of Christ, but we don't take it seriously enough sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That He is in us and we're in Him. Well, see, this, and, and the reason I wanted to bring that up, yeah, you mentioned it in the book, but it also brings out how, you know, different a worldview you are investigating from where you originally had been, you know, uh, be before becoming Catholic. So this right. is. Uh, a, a sort of a new exploration for you, and you you come at it with fresh eyes. That's that's one of the things I like about the book. Yeah, that's the only real qualification I have for writing a book like this. I'm not <laughs> a, a trained scholar, or I don't know the uh, original languages or any of the rest of it. So, my qualification for all of this is enthusiasm for the project, and also I can testify to uh, what learning about these things did for me in my Christian life. In what way? Respond to that. Well, I've always been uh, interested in history and always been somebody who responded to uh, the, the, the story of the past, the great events, the not so great events of the past at times. But I'd always had a sense that, uh, that, that uh, we, it's important to know where you came from, know what your roots are. And yet the more seriously I took that idea in, in secular, I mean, we speak about founding fathers of the American nation. Right. So to find out there were church fathers, that there were founding fathers of the Christian church in the century immediately after the apostles, that was powerful stuff. The idea that you could learn something about the history of the Christian church 
not some sort of guesswork, but real actual recorded history uh, about how these churches were founded and what happened to them in the in the 20th century since then mm -hmm. that was powerfully uh, attractive to me, fascinating to me, a fascinating mm -hmm. subject. So, mm -hmm. so making that connection, I don't know that I, my faith would have held up through the uh, trying times that the world's lived through since then uh, if it had been so defective as it was. I mean, I had no... No offense to my brethren, and I still have many good, good, uh, uh, good friends. Still are evangelicals, but the, for me, as somebody who was keenly aware of history, the, I was also becoming keenly aware that my faith didn't have much of one. Mm -hmm. We just barely owned up to a connection to Martin Luther. We didn't believe many of the same things he did, but he at least struck a blow against the Pope at one point. Yeah. But uh, we had this enormous blank timeline. You know, the last. Christian history we really knew anything about was the apostles, and we may have had a stop or two along the way for St. Augustine or something like that. And then uh, then there was this 1,500-year gap until you got to Luther, you know, and that's an enormous stretch of time. I mean, our whole history of our country is 300 years. We're talking about 1,500 years. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was just this blank spot on the map. And the, the idea that was a that would probably have destroyed my faith eventually. The idea that this religion is rootless, faithless, I mean, uh, historyless. I think it was Cardinal Manning who said, if Christianity is historical, then Catholicism is Christianity. Yeah. And that was a, uh, uh, that, that I think was what I need, the point I needed to get to, that this religion is a religion of something that actually happened and that it has deep roots in history. I, I've often, had the impression from knowing lots and lots of evangelicals and uh, other Protestants as well over the years that the view of history is that Christian history is like broccoli. It's this big head with all these little flowers all over it. And there are lots and lots of different, you know, denominations and stuff, right, right, thousands right. in this right. country. And then there's Judaism that are the roots. Yeah. But there's no stalk connecting the roots to the broccoli top. Yeah, I, I once had a good friend, a dear friend of mine named Kathy Lundquist. I hope she gets to see the program. She lives in Portland, Oregon. When she was still an evangelical and I had only recently converted, uh, I came into the middle of a conversation where she was talking very excitedly about how in her evangelical church they were having a Passover Seder and they were exploring the Jewish roots of the faith. Mm-hmm. I said, that's great, Kathy. I said, uh, maybe after that you'll, you'll have a, a series on the Christian roots. The, the <laughs> you're doing Jewish roots. Maybe you can move on to that, to the Christian roots. You know? <laughs> and there are no Christian roots, really, in yeah. uh, evangelicalism. They, they write it off. Yeah. You know, they, it's a grand anticlimax. Once the, once the faith is delivered by the apostles, very quickly... Mere human beings like us fumble it away, and yeah. it gets lost, and has to be recovered by some latter-day uh, uh, prophet. You know. But one of the things that you also bring out—it's not just the foibles of the human beings that came after the apostles. The Bible points out their own foibles right. as well. You oh. know, it's not that they came out as perfect characters. Right. Christ chose sinners because that's all they had to work with. Yeah, one of the great, many people before me have said that one of the great proofs of the Bible is that it doesn't show signs of having been doctored up afterwards. Yeah. 
you know, the saints oftentimes are the worst sinners, and that the uh, uh, the, the dark passages you would expect uh, uh, somebody to go through and say, well, let's leave this part out. That that'll might hinder our growth potential in the future. But uh, let's leave that uh, that particular uh, right. saint with feet of clay out of the story. But the Bible doesn't do that. It's a no. long. Well, it tells us in the second, third chapters of Genesis about the fall of man, and then it illustrates it for pretty much the rest of the of the yeah. uh, of the collection. So now, I've uh, often yeah. said that I'm glad I'm not one of the characters in the Bible, because yeah. my sins would be <laughs> not only told, but people would read them and call it church for the next thousands yeah, that's of years. Right. right, you get to, if you're, yeah, you get all of your uh, uh, dark. Spots your bad bumps in the road, uh, extolled from the pulpit for the next two thousand years. So, well, what you do here that's uh, very interesting is you take a, uh, a combination of points of information about the apostles. You go back to what we know of ancient customs in the Holy Land, what we know from history course from the New Testament itself, um, but the historical writers such as Josephus and others, and the writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran, uh, all these different elements you bring together, and you have these data, these uh, informative points, but then you, as you admit, you use your imagination to connect the dots into a whole picture. So it's not just dots, but it's this picture of the apostles and the, the li a lively sense of them. And that's, that's something that brings out their humanity. Well, that, that was certainly what I was after, yeah. The, uh, uh, telling it as a story that would engage people's uh, hearts as well as their heads mm -hmm. has always been one of my motivations in everything I've written. Uh, you know, all of this stuff is buried away in a lot of fine print somewhere. Anybody could dig it up if they went to the trouble. But uh, uh, people need a foot in the door. They, mm -hmm. need, uh, they need to see why I should be interested in this. And so you, yeah. you engage their uh, emotions by uh, bringing that. And sometimes you have to connect a few dots, which I, I, I don't think is anything wrong with it as long as you're, you own up to it. You tell them what's, your readers, what part of it is you putting the pieces together, what part is actually spelled out in Scripture. Uh, it's important to do that. Well, one of the things that I think is, uh, uh, I had a question about, you start off and go on in a couple chapters about Nathaniel. Right. Now, Nathaniel is not usually uh, also known as Bartholomew. Right. Um, he's usually not the apostle. Everybody says, oh, yeah, let, I really want to know about him. Why did you focus on Nathaniel Bartholomew? I think he's kind of an everyman. I think he, uh, even though there's an old tradition that he was studying to be a scribe, so there's good reason to think that he was very familiar with all the messianic prophecies of the Bible. So I use him as a, a device for seeing, yes. seeing the story through. The reader mm -hmm. sees the story through his eyes as somebody who's not part of the original group of uh, Peter, James, John, Philip, Andrew, all the rest of the famous names. He comes in as a bit of a 
a bit of an outsider. He's somebody who's brought into the circle by mm -hmm. Philip. Right. So uh, he's, a, he's a good foot in the door type character. He's somebody who gets invited in and we get invited into the story by, by the device of telling it through his point of view. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's one of the other interesting things is how you bring out that he's there for that miracle at his hometown of Cana. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah that's very, very interesting, isn't it? Uh, you know, so much of what's written about the apostles, I often get asked, I've done radio interviews about the book before this, and one of the questions that comes up pretty often is, uh, how can you write a book about the 12 apostles when, when six of the 12 are only names on a list in Scripture? Mm -hmm. Isn't it, how can these guys be important? How can they be foundation mm -hmm. of the, mm -hmm. part of the foundation of the church mm -hmm. as we confess in the creed that, uh, that the apostles are part of that foundation? Uh, how, can, how can that be the case when some of them are just names on a list and uh, didn't, didn't write any Scripture uh, as far as we know, it's nothing recorded in Scripture about them other than their names. Mm -hmm. And then even somebody like Nathaniel has one or two short anecdotes. Right. And I sometimes say, well, you, you, this is a little bit of your lingering Protestantism. And even if you were born and raised Catholic in this country, Americans uh, uh, absorb Protestantism uh, from the air by osmosis. Yeah, you know. sure. But th this is part of the idea that if it's not in the book, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this saying on, on the internet, picks or it didn't happen. Uh, the, the point of view here is show me the scripture, show me, show me the verses or it didn't happen. But uh, it's not difficult if you think about it to see that uh, it's, it's, it's normal and natural that not all 12 of the apostles should have been literary apostles, literary men, mm -hmm. people who write. You know, you and I have written a book or two, but the uh, average person doesn't. And at it's not at all strange to think that, uh, that some of the men that Jesus chose were uh, men of action. Not that the two are completely incompatible, really? but doers rather than writers. Mm -hmm. And uh, that they were so busy planting churches, uh, spreading the gospel in dangerous lands, trying to avoid being beheaded or uh, burned alive or any of these other or things. That, in the case of St. Bartholomew, right. flayed That's alive. Exactly they pulled right. the skin off of his body. Wow, but you see, you spoiled the ending now. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> well, I, mean, okay. I didn't make it up. No, no spoilers, Bob. <laughs> but uh, no, the, uh, the, you know, the idea that the church is found, I mean, we have churches, there may be just a name on the list in the Gospels, but there are whole nations that list one of the, these minor names on, quote unquote, minor names on the list as the man that brought the gospel to their nation, mm -hmm. founded the church in their country. So it, maybe he's a name on a list elsewhere, but mm -hmm. there they remember him. Yep. And that, that shows the difference. It isn't, uh, the, the book is sacred, but other things are sacred too. Someone like Danny Thomas, the, the comedian Jude. who, who yeah, started yeah, yeah, the yeah. St. Jude Hospital, he's Lebanese. And St. Jude was the apostle of the coastland of Lebanon. That's a good example. And, and so th that sense of gratitude that he showed by starting a hospital in honor of St. Jude right. that takes care of kids who are 
great, great right, straits. Right, yeah. This is a very important thing. Yeah, not a foreign idea in Catholicism, but for an evangelical, uh, you know, I mean, how important can he be? And yet, about all of those twelve, Jesus says, not just once, but but more than once, he says, "Your names will be written on the pillars of the New Jerusalem. You will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." And of course, the twelve tribes of Israel. I mean, Israel, the larger spiritual Israel now includes us. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, uh, you know, what did these simple fishermen from Galilee do to get their names written on the pillars of heaven? Well, that's part of the inquiry of the book. But even that idea alone shows that they may be names on a list, but when we get to heaven, there'll be names on thrones. And uh, uh, that's an important idea. And. It- you see, for instance, in the book of Revelation that their names are on the different layers of the foundation right, right. of the New Jerusalem. Right. I mean, again, this is not unimportant. No. St. Paul teaches that Christ is the cornerstone, but the apostles are the foundation right. of the church. Right. This is not unimportant. No, and not uh absent from Scripture. I mean, some of this stuff is extra-biblical tradition, but this isn't. Right. The idea that, that uh, our Lord Himself told us that these men would have a special role in uh, uh, the, the age to come uh, is, is right there in, in black and white. Yep. There's something related to that. You have a chapter here about the apostles as men of miracles. Right, right, right. Why did you do that? Why, what? <laughs> well, that's another thing that I've noticed is pretty uh, not not noticed enough, and that is that uh, first of all, that the first thing Jesus did before he began to teach anybody was he started doing miracles. Right. The uh, uh, the miracles come before everything else. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, people who haven't I think haven't studied the Bible carefully yet for themselves often have the impression that Scripture is just chock-a-block with miracles all the way through. Of course you find miracles in the Gospels. Uh, Miracles are everywhere throughout the book, but that isn't really true. There's whole ages of time that go by in the pages of Scripture where miracles are hardly known. Like, give me a for instance. Well, for example, the period, uh, the 400 years or so before the coming of Moses. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. right. Matter of fact, there's not only are there no miracles, there's nothing said about the life of the Israelites from the death of Jacob and his sons until Moses. Right. It's, it's 400 years of silence. And even the greatest uh, miracle workers of the Old Testament, uh, depending on how you define it, you know, uh, Moses, for example, seems to have done about 12 miracles, depending on how you, you know, one of the miracles was done by his brother Aaron. Right. Using his staff. Right. But, uh, uh, and depending on how you define, you know, how many were called down at Moses' own word, that's not made really clear. But about 12 miracles from the great Moses, the great lawgiver. Mm-hmm. Then you later on you get to the uh, uh, great prophets Elijah and Elisha. Who also probably had about 12 miracles each to their credit. By the way, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but those three, Moses, right. Elijah, and Elisha, are identified as men of God. Mm-hmm. And that 
is a technical term in the Old Testament. Yeah, I've heard To this, indicate yeah, yeah. that it's a prophet who does miracles. Right. Yeah. The others are prophets. Because Je- how many miracles did Jeremiah do? Right. As far as we know, none. Ezekiel. Well, as you know, there's the uh, uh, the prophets of Baal and the fire that came down. But uh, at, at that, the, well, that's a, a, a logic, but, yeah, but yeah. Ezekiel, right? Yeah, you're right. No, though most None. of them are like that. Most Habakkuk. of them are literary prophets right. or uh, Isaiah, uh, right? Habakkuk. The greatest of all of them, Micaiah, yeah, yeah. Zephaniah, right? No miracles right. for any of those prophets. And even the great Elijah did about twelve, we think. Mm-hmm. Now. If you look at the Gospels, Jesus must have done about 12 an hour at times. Mm-hmm. There's 40 that are spelled out explicitly, but there's at least 15 passages where there's something like this said. He came into the country and the throngs came to meet Him and He cured all of them. Yes. <laughs> and so this is, this, that must have been a lot of people, you know. And it wasn't only Jewish folk who came to be healed at different places. It was also Gentiles from the surrounding countries that uh, were also coming to be healed by Him. So this was a truly uh, unprecedented outpouring of the miraculous that accompanied the advent of the Son of God. But one of the most important things about this story for our purposes is that once He called His chosen together, He sent them out and it says He gave them power to do the same kind of miracles, to cast out devils, to heal the sick. You know, we get a whole, whole list of things. that. So suddenly, you know, you may wonder, well, these obscure Galileans, what did they do to get their names on the pillars of heaven? They probably worked more miracles than the greatest Old Testament saints, even the, uh, even the disciples mm-hmm. who went out and, uh, uh, and performed wonders in Christ's name. Right. So uh, instead of one unprecedented miracle man, now you've got 13. And that gives a sense of what's happening when Christ uh, mints His 12, uh, 12 apostles. And something that's very important that St. Luke brings out more than the others in his second volume of Acts of the Apostles is after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the miracles continue on in a great multitude. Right, right, right. Lots of people are healed by touching claws or the shadow of St. Peter, as well as their own direct prayer and laying on of hands. There are miracles ongoing. So So, they really were men of miracles. Yeah, and, and little Christ. Yeah. In, in a way, vicars of Christ, all of them. They're standing in, in front of the people that Christ is trying to reach in persona Christi. They're there uh, preaching the things He preached and doing the things He did. And even that, that phrase, in the person of Christ, St. Paul uses that in 2 Corinthians, right. in to prosopo Christum. Right that he knows that he's acting in the person of Christ. Yeah, we are ambassadors from, for Christ and uh, we are uh, bringing His reconciliation. We're dispensing it is the idea, uh, which is really uh, pretty fascinating. Yeah. Uh, many times I remember stumbling over uh, Christ's uh, saying in the 
Gospel of John that uh, that you'll that he tells the apostles, "You'll do the same works that I've been doing. You'll do even greater works." Yes. Now I used to think, now what can that possibly mean? Mm -hmm. Most of the early fathers think it must have meant that they brought in an, uh, an incredible harvest of souls that Christ simply prepared the tools for. Mm -hmm. In other words, He didn't go to, to all the nations. He stayed in, in uh, the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. Whereas the apostles went out to the ends of the earth as He commissioned them to. Mm -hmm. So that work of, uh, uh, of now, of course, they're nothing. They're nothing they do is of their own account. They're all do. It's all Christ working through them. So there's no idea that it's a competition. But it was Jesus Himself who said, "You do greater works." A good way of thinking of it is to say, "I'll do greater works than you've seen so far through you," and, and He did. And it's it's something I think to point out that they did not ever claim that it was their own power. Just the opposite. Right. When Simon the magician wants this power and tries to buy it from St. Peter, St. Right. Peter is absolutely appalled and tells him he must repent uh, because you can't, it's not for sale. It's a gift from God. And it's a very marked contrast to what our Lord Himself did. Mm -hmm. Who accepted worship and homage? Yes, and who uh, acted in his own name? Right. He right. Uh, when he calmed the sea, he didn't beseech his father for salvation. He didn't uh, call out for God to stop the storm. It just says he did it himself. Yeah, yeah. He would have just said you know, the words shakat. Yep. You know, be still. Yeah. So there's a contrast. That's an area. That's a way in which the apostles are not. Or contrasted with their Lord. Yeah, they will uh, say, like Peter and John, neither silver nor gold have I, but in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up and right. walk. You know, that they'll do. We need to take a little break. We're going to come back in just a couple of minutes. Please stay with us as we talk more about the apostles. And especially, I want to start off with why Jesus kept things secret from others but told the apostles. Come back and we'll find out what's going on. Welcome back. We are discussing with Rod Bennett his book, These Twelve, The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes. And again, this is available at EWTNRC.com where it is item number CB487, CB487. And if you remember, we did another one of his books. We did some programs about the four witnesses, the early church in her own words, also by Rod Bennett, and that's also at EW10RC.com where it is item number 8478. All right, Rod, one of the things that, matter of fact, just last week on my Scripture and Tradition program, 
somebody was asking about Mark chapter 4, I think verse 11, where our Lord uh, says that, you know, to you it is given to know these things, but to the folks outside, we, I speak in parables so that they can hear but not listen, you know, and, you know, and not hear the message. And this person was, it was an email that I responded to. And the person was somewhat upset. Why would Jesus not want the crowds to understand him? You have a nice treatment of that here. Tell us about that. Well, thank you for saying so. The, uh, yeah, it's something I've given a lot of thought to. I'm a bit of a study, uh, a student of Cardinal Newman. St. John Henry Newman now. Right. And uh, Newman wrote quite a bit about uh, how initiation was done in the early church, how, how Christians were evangelized and how they were brought into the, uh, into the, commu into the community. And uh, he brings out some really fascinating aspects of the writings of the early fathers from this era, from the mm -hmm. early church and how it was done in the early church. Most people know that our current RCIA program is sort of loosely based around uh, a renewal of this idea, a long program of formation that takes seven, you know, in the early church it took three years sometimes, but mm -hmm. we, we do it in about eight months these days. Yeah. But uh, the, the idea that there is a, uh, a form that the early church used for bringing people into the knowledge of Christ. And it's really interesting to see how the early fathers talk about being careful not to share mysteries, not to share difficult theology with uh, newcomers, certainly not before they're baptized. The early church uh, spoke of baptism as enlightenment, really thought in terms of baptism is what makes you able to understand Christian theology. Yeah, they, they uh, wouldn't teach people about the divinity of Christ. No. They wouldn't talk yeah. about the Blessed Trinity. Yeah, practically our first RCI lessons are about the Trinity and the uh, and the uh, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And other yeah, they things. never taught about no, the Eucharist. They didn't t tell what was going on in the Eucharist. As a matter of fact, there's there's evidence. They said they wouldn't even teach them the Lord's Prayer until after they were baptized. Right. Because that was considered the most powerful prayer. And you might think now, now here we're getting echoes of Jesus saying, "I'm not, I'm there's." I'm not going to give this to, I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. The idea being not that these people are, are, are worthless or anything like that, but simply, you know, what happens to swine if you cast them in front of, so pearls if you cast them in front of swine? They get trampled on because pigs have no use for a pearl necklace, right? So, uh, same is true. They uh, want turnips, not pearls. That's right. So, the idea that the Lord is saying, uh, uh, don't, you, you can actually damage your hearers by giving them theology before you give them evangelization. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of the worst things I think you can do to a person is to give them a lot of theology before you evangelize them mm -hmm. because uh, it teaches them to approach it not as a, as a reality but a, a set of hoops to jump through, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the, Newman brings out the fact that the early church was very cautious about giving uh, certainly the great mysteries of the faith, you know, about the hypostatic union and other things. So these diff very profound ideas were kept for experienced Christians and that the newcomers 
got uh, a call to repentance. Feel sorry for your sins. There's nothing we can do for you until that happens. And yeah. one of the reasons even that would take so long, in much of the pagan culture that they were evangelizing, something like fornication or adultery right. were not considered a problem. Yeah. You know, wives had to just put up with the fact that their husbands were going to fool around. Right. And that was just part, of, and wives often fooled around too. Right. As if, you know, to believe the Roman historians. And so, you know, what are you talking about that as a problem for? They took it as normal. And wide variety of other sexual behaviors. Right. And in a place like Sparta, if you didn't get caught stealing, you're doing something good. Yeah. You know, they had to really help people see that these sins were sinful. Well, give, give them a picture of the holiness of God so that they could begin to feel their need of salvation. Right. There's no, there's, you, this is what I mean by saying you can damage your hearers by giving them uh, theology in the wrong order. What good will a person make of the idea that Christ loves you and He died for your sins if you don't feel sorry for your sins and don't feel that they're endangering you in some way? Or the, or What am the, I being saved from? Or, or that they even are sins right. in the first place. What, what use is a Savior to a man who doesn't think he's in any trouble? Mm -hmm. yep. you, you know, a Savior is a man who comes along and throws you a life ring and hauls you out of the water so right. you won't drown. If you don't think you're in any trouble, to be told that God loves you, well, what's not to love, right? And, and, <laughs> and th this is an important point yeah. of evangelization because I hear all the time from parents that, oh, my kids have left the church and they, they, they're, you know, living with their boyfriend and girlfriend and all this stuff. And, you know, I don't know what to do. Well, one of the, before you can start to talk about the Trinity and the Eucharist, they have to know that the sins are wrong. Right. And that, you have to explain why they're, that's, that's what they would do in the early to, church. To, to teach that Christ died in your place mm -hmm. so that you wouldn't have to pay the penalty for your sins is pearls before swine to somebody who doesn't think they've done anything wrong or doesn't feel any guilt. And so so to, the early church was careful about this. And for uh, Christ didn't feel that it was worth explaining these parables if you didn't right. have the wherewithal to begin to understand the concepts behind them. Right. Father Newman said that the uh, uh, that these uh, practices that he found in the writings of the early fathers, he believed, represented what he called an apostolical rule for dispensing the word of life. And he believed that the apostle, it came from the apostles mm -hmm. and from Christ in turn. So mm -hmm. this was Christ's own method of giving lessons by means of parables, metaphors, all of these things in hopes of, uh, well, C.S. Lewis called it getting past watchful dragons. He told stories, his Narnia fables, yes. with the idea that he could begin to impart spiritual ideas to people before they got an idea that they were being preached to and their brains clamped down and they stopped listening. And I think our Lord did the same thing. The parables had the idea, uh, had the effect of, of causing them to want to know what that means and what this guy's getting at 
okay? But it, uh, it didn't give them a theology that, that couldn't have done them any good at that point and actually would have. It, it's harmful to take second graders and give them 12, 12th grade lessons. Yeah. Sometimes they might want it. They might say, well, teach me algebra too. Well, you're going to have to do your arithmetic first. Right. And that's what the Lord is getting at. You know, it's funny. There's actually a, a place where he, he, he doesn't, the, the passage you quoted, uh, where he says that he's saying it this way so that they can, having heard, they won't understand. Right. Uh, it, it's the idea of, uh, uh, of just saying, I can give them a taste but they're not ready to receive the full message yet. We call them on little by little. And so it's really enlightening to see how he did the same thing in the lives of the apostles. He starts out giving them not the full message, not, and in fact he lets them grope their way towards the idea of what kind of Messiah he is. Mm -hmm. Because nobody really can be told. They have to, uh, they have to work it out by going through it, by living it. I, I, was it was it Maria Montessori who said, uh, or Montessori, Montessori. who mm -hmm. said, uh, uh, who said it's almost impossible for a person to understand the answer to a question that they aren't asking. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's that's exactly right. And, and and the apostles were asking the question, and so he let them ask and ask and ask. I even remember back in the '80s there was this big campaign, mostly among evangelicals. And it was bumper stickers saying, Jesus is the answer. And there were people outside the faith who had their own bumper sticks saying, what was the question? <laughs> and they got a point. They, exactly, they <laughs> yeah, did. They've got exactly, a point. they had a point. Now, what, what is the question that Christ answers? And a lot of people don't know. So you can't give Jesus as the answer if they, until you give them the question. Right. Make it their own question. So the apostles, they come into their relationship with Christ with a hundred different notions of what Messiah will be when He comes. Mm -hmm. And all of them really are valid. The Old Testament, if you look at the Old Testament's collection of Messianic prophecies, they're all true, of course. All, tr all biblical prophecy is true. But it, how it's true doesn't make a great deal of sense. He's the Lord of love in some passages. He draws men with bonds of love. He comes in riding on the, on the foal of an ass. But, and then on the other side, he's coming in to wreak vengeance and bust heads and, uh, uh, I mean, really uh, warlike uh, imagery. Uh, and it's all equally true, and it's all equally messianic. And well, how to put those pieces together is something they had to be, they had to live through three years of, being in close proximity to him in order to learn it. Well, one of the main messages of Christ is repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And even in that little phrase that he begins with repent before the command to believe. Right. That This is to your point. But yeah. he also says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and as Messiah, he's king. But you bring out how kingship in the Old Testament, you know, the, the kingship from the family of David was not always a big prize. Well, I mean, a lot of the kings weren't that they good. They were terrible. And even two of the good ones, David and his son Solomon, were very confusing images of Messiah in many ways. David was such a man of war that uh, the Lord wouldn't let him build a temple in his honor. He said he had too much blood on his hands. Whereas Solomon, who was a man of peace, 
uh, was unlike our Lord in different ways. He didn't live the kind of chaste life that our Lord did, and he didn't, uh, uh, he didn't live a life of poverty and humility, a lot of pomp and glory on Solomon's part. So there wasn't it, which, one man who was a good messianic image, right. and that was confusing. And you know, it's uh, very interesting how, on one hand, David's lusts, you know, are what helped to destroy his family, but uh, and same with Solomon. I mean, marriage is great, right. it's a great institution, but a thousand wives <laughs> is too much. Right, right, right. You know, you don't overdo a good thing. The fact that God used those men so greatly is another, yet another example of how He writes straight with crooked lines. You know, but and so. but in con- there's a, this contrast. Jesus is celibate. Right. Even despite some of the ways that fools in the modern world tried to get him a girlfriend, right. he's celibate in contrast to these kings that he's descended from who are anything but celibate. Right. It's, it's a so very, you're picking up aspects of Christ right. in a hundred different Old Testament Christ figures, but none of those figures uh, represent, is a good image of the whole Christ. Right. He, he's sort of an amalgam of all of the Christ figures. Right. And so, but that's a kind of a confusing idea. And the apostles didn't know whether to expect another Gideon, another, uh, another Judas Maccabeus who would come and free the people from the pagan oppressors, or, or whether to expect a sage or a, a, a holy man like Elijah or any of these other things. And the, the way the Lord taught them uh, what He was trying to teach was to let them live through the experience and put the pieces together slowly over time. Yeah. You might think, now why didn't he just come out and say, well, fellas, here it is. We've known each other a week. I happen to be the incarnation of the co-equal second person of the divine trinity uh, come down to earth in the form of a man. That's not how he did it. No. You might say, why not? In fact, it took the church another 300 years to get that particular form of words, as true as it is. And the answer is because the church, beginning with the apostles, had to live through and walk through that process of discovery. No, nobody could just be told. You had right. to, uh, you had to, it was a question that you needed to be asking before you could get the answer. And one of the things about the apostles is our Lord had to keep teaching and correcting their, them. You know, that when, whenever he talked about his coming death and resurrection, they would change the subject and talk about themselves. Right. Yeah. Am I the greatest? What am I going to get out yeah. of this? Yeah. Yeah. This is, and he had to keep, their questions were, what's in it for me? Right. And I think sometimes, well, I, I would say at least some of it though is pretty honorable. In other words, their conception of Messiah, and there's good grounds for it in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. is of success. Right. He's going to come. He's going to drive out the, uh, uh, the nations, the heathen. He's going to get Israel out from under the boot of the oppressor. And how's he going to do that if he, if he dies, if they kill him, you know? And uh, uh, so th- there, it was a confusing mass of material that they were looking at. Yep. And uh, it was a big idea is another way to put it. And the yes. big idea took a long time. We're still, we still haven't learned it completely. No. And, uh, uh, but the apostles got the early first steps. 
And, but even they couldn't get it, just a spoon-fed uh, Baltimore Catechism answers to remember in a kind of a rote way. That's just not, they, they weren't learning it. They wouldn't have been learning it, you know. And this is one of the reasons that at the Last Supper, our Lord says that you can't take all that I have to say to right. you, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, will lead you into all truth. Right. All truth. But you're not there yet. Yeah. Which is kind of another way of saying He's going to do most of this work. Yes. I've just started. I've given you a jump start. Right. Okay. But He's coming in and He'll be with you for 2,000 years, not three. Right. And uh, uh, so he's going, to, this, he's going to do most of the heavy lifting in this regard. Another chapter you have here, though, is one that we have a few minutes left, is about a new priesthood. What, mm -hmm. what do you got going on there? Tell us about that. Well, uh, one thing as an evangelical that you didn't like to hear, you didn't like to hear about a Catholic priesthood because uh, the book of Hebrews teaches us quite rightly and truly that uh, the Lord Jesus is the high priest now. He's the perfect priest. He takes the sacrifice, the, per the one perfect sacrifice of Himself into the presence of God. So we had an idea of what need now for a human priesthood. And why should I confess my sins well, to a man? Ah. Yes, that's it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the idea that a human priesthood was superfluous. Do you see how the, there's a connection here with the idea of the apostles? In the evangelical scheme, the apostles themselves are superfluous. Once Jesus got the ideas that He wanted revealed, written down in the Bible, what need was the, you know, He used the apostles to write the books, and after that His need for them was over with. And uh, here is the same idea. What need is there for a human priesthood when Jesus is acting as priest uh, in heaven? And even more, we were very uh, carefully taught as evangelicals to say, well, there's a priesthood of all believers now. The whole uh, of Christendom, the whole, the whole Christian church is a priesthood of believers, uh, uh, one one holy priesthood, kingdom of, of uh, kings and priests. No special priesthood. Right. And yet, we, we ha it was a bit of a bombshell when somebody pointed out to me and said, Rod, uh, you know that's a quote from the Old Testament. How can that prove that there's no priesthood since we know there was an Old Testament priesthood at the time that uh, statement was made? Kingdom of, uh, nation of kings and priests. Right. So in, in, it's in uh, Exodus chapter 19, right. verse 6, that you're a kingdom of priests. Exactly. But they went on to establish the priests and Levites. Right. The fact that the Israelites, the whole nation, was a kingdom of priests did not obviate the need for a ministerial exactly. priesthood, a sacerdotal priesthood. And uh, also, it does not obviate it now. The fact that we have one great high priest in heaven, the perfect high priest, does not say that it's impossible or needless or pointless to have uh, a, a special class of ministerial priests, Levites as it were. And having the priesthood of all the believers, which is also a that was a Catholic doctrine before Absolutely. it was an Absolutely. evangelical and still doctrine. Is. Yeah, still is. Yeah, of course that is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's essential. But it started with the Twelve Apostles. Mm -hmm. yeah. I wish we had more time to go into that, the idea of how the Apostles became the new priesthood, but yeah, I think we're, we're a little short on time. Yeah, a little short. But one of the things uh, that I'd like to just so to help people understand this, I like to think of the priesthood of all believers as being like sunshine. 
It is this priesthood spread throughout the whole church, the way sunlight is diffused throughout the whole atmosphere. Right. We ordained priests are not just one of another, the priest is not even an intensification. It's a different kind of priesthood. We ordained priests are like magnifying glasses. Right. That the sunlight can come through us and refract to a single point at the altar so that all the gifts of the priesthood of all believers is refracted through us right. like through a magnifying glass that once and as as boys sometimes do <laughs> they take magnifying glasses refract the light and then have this uh, fire start yeah. you can light a piece of paper through us as magnifying glasses the fire is started at the altar and that yeah, that yeah. Eucharist is this. So it's a, it's a I think one image. of the Eastern Fathers had used a similar image. He said uh, he was asked uh, if God is everywhere why do we have to go to church? And he said well water is everywhere diffused in the atmosphere but if you want to drink you have to go to the well. Yes. So there's presence Different yes. ways in which God is present. Exactly. And He's present in the common priesthood of the believer, but in a, in a particular way yes. in the ministerial priesthood. And the Vatican Council says that this priesthood, you offer your sacrifices to God through the ministerial priest. Right. And that's in uh, Lumen Gentium, paragraph 11. Right, it's right. important to Excellent. know. Excellent. Again, I want to encourage you to get to know more about the 12 apostles. And this book is called These 12, The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes by our guest tonight, Rod Bennett. Now you can get this from EWTNRC.com where it's item number CB487, CB487. And the advantage of it is that you'll get a, a, a picture in your mind of what it was like to be those apostles and following Christ. So thank you for writing this. I think it's something to help us all. And I hope so. oh, I think I, I think so. I found it very very good myself. And hopefully you'll keep writing more books. We'll have you back. Uh, until then, may the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. May He lead you like He led the apostles in all your ways by His peace. And may Almighty God bless you and keep you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, we can bring you guests like Rod, plus all the other shows, plus the Holy Week programs that are coming up, so that, but it's brought to you by you. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you. God bless.